Welcome to Angry Americans, and welcome to episode 81. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. But this election is a matter of national security. It really is. We can't let this happen. It's a matter of national security. He's actually right. It is a matter of national security. And our national security is more fragile right now in this moment than any other time in our lifetime. That's in part because as a nation, we're focused on the wrong day. For years now, we've all been focused on November 3rd, 2020, Election Day 2020. Everyone, nationwide, worldwide, has understandably obsessed around primaries, swing states, turnout, voter suppression, down-ballot races, Russian attacks, and on Election Day, November 3rd, 2020. But very few are talking about what happens on November 4th, 2020. Very few are talking about the day after. The day after. Like now, throughout the 80s, people obsessed over a terrifyingly important day. A day that would change everything forever. And in 1983, ABC premiered a groundbreaking, terrifying, made-for-TV movie that set a record as the most watched television film in history. Over 100 million people watched. 62% of the entire American TV viewing audience watched one thing, the fictional story of what happened in the event of a different kind of a Russian attack on America, a nuclear war. As millions of people watched the day after, we visited with one family in New Jersey tonight to get their reaction. Paul and Mary DiPascali watched with their 11-year-old daughter, but they sent their five and eight-year-old children to bed because they knew the film was very, very powerful and probably too much for them. It was completely devastating. It was a horrible thing to see the reality and how fast it could happen. Those of us who watch it in the viewing public are, are not the ones who really should get the education from that film. It's more the people who have the authority to push the button. It really happened. I would just want, I would just want to go die with the blast and not have to live and start, have to start all over again. The film was important for many reasons. And I watched it as an eight-year-old. And it scared me and scarred me forever. As a kid, I wasn't scared of the Boogeyman or Freddy Krueger or Jason. I was scared of an intercontinental ballistic nuclear missile attack. I wasn't a normal kid, I guess. But I wasn't just scared of the attack. I was scared about what would happen after the attack. I wasn't scared about dying. On that day, I was scared about surviving that day. I wasn't scared about the event. I was scared about the day after. Patriotic, patriotic, slam, bright, 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 
In the 1980s, everyone talked about and was fearful about nuclear war and the threat of nuclear war. Today, everyone is talking about and fearful about Election Day. But few are talking about the day after. The series of events, many terrifying, that could unfold after November 3rd. Many that could unfold regardless of who wins. Armed protests, civil unrest, violence in the streets, domestic terrorism, deployment of the National Guard, deployment of the active duty units, attacks by foreign enemies, attacks by domestic enemies, attacks on our leaders, attacks on our infrastructure, our systems, our cities, our towns, our families. This isn't fiction. This month, the FBI arrested 13 self-identified militia members who should be called domestic terrorists who plotted to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer as part of a violent revolt against the government that included firebombing police cars in a parking lot. FBI Special Agent Robert Trask told a federal judge in detail how the terrorists planned to do it. 37-year-old Adam Fox, the ringleader of the group, told the FBI his idea was to take Whitmer out on a boat and leave her in the middle of Lake Michigan and disable the engine and just leave the boat. The FBI testified in court that the goal was to take Whitmer to another state and try her for what they called treason. And these domestic terrorists weren't alone. According to the FBI, the Michigan suspects are part of a larger group of terrorists from at least five states that met online and recruited members through social media and planned to carry out attacks against government officials. Specifically, the FBI testified that these terrorists were upset with Whitmer and Virginia Governor Ralph Northam because they had issues with their lockdown orders. This is not an episode of 24. This is not a Tom Clancy novel. This is not fiction. This is happening in America right now. And it could be small potatoes compared to what we could see on the day after Election Day. I don't want to wake up. I want to flow it through my streets. Getting me high. Under my feet. I don't want to wake up. Wake up. America could wake up to a very new reality on the day after Election Day. Just like the day after 9-11 awakened America to the very real threat of terrorist cells inside our borders, introducing us to Al-Qaeda and a terrifying array of new threats ranging from shoe bombers to attacks on military recruiting centers to the Fort Hood massacre to bombings at the Boston Marathon. After 9-11, on the day after, on 9-12, we entered a new reality of new threats. And after November 3rd, on the day after, on November 4th, 2020, we may enter another totally new reality of new threats. One where plots to kill political leaders, attack police stations, or take over government buildings are not surprising anymore, but expected.
On the day after, our greatest national security threat won't be Al-Qaeda. It'll be what Newsweek's Naveed Jamili called Yal-Qaeda. The threat won't be ISIS members from overseas. It'll be what our guest in this episode calls vanilla ISIS right across town or coming into your town or city. Just ask the folks in Portland and Kenosha. On the day after, and really right now, the greatest threat to our national security, the greatest threat to you and the ones you care about, is not an Al-Qaeda cell of foreigners. It's a disgruntled American in your own town. It is about our national security. It's all about our national security. And on the day after, it could be bad. Very bad. In the immediate future, the most direct threats to you and your family are not Russian troops or North Korean missiles or ISIS car bombs. In the immediate future, the most direct threats to you and your family are a lonely college kid with a sniper rifle, a wannabe militia man with a bomb, or of course, an angry Trump supporter without a mask. This is our new reality, and the media is not talking about it. The media is not talking about the day after. But we are. This episode, we dig deep into what could happen the day after Election Day. If Trump wins, if Trump loses, and likely either way. In this episode, we dig into not just what might happen or what could happen, but what is probable to happen. Probable meaning with a degree of certainty over 90%. What's your level of certainty? Uncertain. Bobby Axelrod should be convinced. There's no debate between the candidates this week. Trump blew that, and the media empowered him yet again to do it. He whined and pouted, and the media caved again, and for the same reason they always do. So Trump got what he wanted, NBC got ratings, ABC got ratings, they all got their money, and the public suffers. Again, yet another corporate media political fiasco. This is why C-SPAN and PBS should have all debates and town halls. The most important election in history shouldn't be influenced by media profits. But there's no debate. And there's also no debate about whether or not there will be chaos and carnage the day after Election Day. There is no debate about whether or not there will be mayhem. I am not uncertain. Our guest is not uncertain. There will be violence in our streets on the day after. That is certain. The question is, how violent will it be? 
If this is a war for the soul of our country, which I think it is, will it be a war of minor skirmishes or a protracted land war? Will it be the Shays' Rebellion? Will it be Grenada lasting four days? Or will it be Afghanistan lasting 19 years and counting? Will it be the Skull Creek Massacre lasting just a day or two? Or will it be the War on Terror, now a forever war, lasting over 19 years and counting? In this episode, we've got the perfect guy to ask, Malcolm Nance. Malcolm Nance is a decorated military veteran, an astute analyst, and a truth teller. He's also a super cool guy and a true patriot. He served in the Navy for over 20 years. As a Navy specialist in Navy cryptology, he was involved in numerous counterterrorism, intelligence, and combat operations. He's an expert in intelligence and counterterrorism. He was also an instructor in the Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape Training School, teaching Navy and Marine Corps pilots and air crew how to survive as a prisoner of war. He helped initiate the Advanced Terrorism, Abduction, and Hostage Survival Course of Instruction. He regularly teaches police, SWAT, and military folks. He's an expert on terrorism, foreign and domestic. And he's going to break down what the day after could look like. Imagine these guys saying, "Okay, Donald Trump says we won. We won and they're going to steal the election from us. Now it's time for us to start going and taking back state houses. Time for us to go take uh, police stations. Time for us to go out and do armed demonstrations on the streets. Right. You know, I tell my neighbors this all the time. I'm a competitive shooter. And they go, oh, Malcolm, you know, I you know, I heard you're a gun guy. I go, yeah. For someone who is out of control in my village who comes onto my property. I'm not with you. I'm not a militia man, right? There's, and these people have these fantasies in their head that they are essentially the Wolverines. You know, they're the guys who are fighting the invader forces. Malcolm understands the threats we face on the day after. He's going to set the stage. He knows about the battlefields. He took part in combat operations that occurred after the 1983 Beirut barracks bombings. He was involved in the 1986 U.S. bombing of Libya. He served on the USS Wainwright during Operation Praying Mantis. He was aboard that ship during the sinking of the Iranian missile boat Joshan in 1998. He served on the USS Tripoli during the Gulf War, and he assisted during Bosnian airstrikes. He's been to Iraq and tons of other places he can't talk about. If you're a longtime listener, you remember he joined us last summer back in episode 13. It was one of our most downloaded pods ever. Go back and check it out if you've never heard it before for much more on Malcolm's incredibly fascinating life story, his favorite drink, his first car, and his peeps answer. But as I shared back then, I met Malcolm years ago, pre-pandemic, strangely and amazingly, at Tavern on the Green in Central Park with the great Ron Perlman from Sons of Anarchy and our fireball guest from episode three and recently in episode 64. Malcolm introduced me to Ron Perlman. He's introduced me to lots of information and he's going to introduce you to what the day after could look like. Stakes was high when I talked to Malcolm last summer. 
and they're even higher now. The highest yet. In the wildest dreams of ISIS members, they couldn't have dreamed of making America as vulnerable as we are right now. They don't have to dream about it because Donald Trump is making it a reality. This is not an ABC made for TV movie. This is not a reality show. This is our true reality. In 2016, the Russians attacked our elections, attacked our country, attacked our people. This year, they don't have to. They can just sit back and watch Donald Trump do it. He's the Osama bin Laden of the stupid. He's the ultimate political suicide bomber. He's a dirty bomb of American politics. He's an intercontinental ballistic missile of disruption and stupidity. He's now truly the super spreader of the coronavirus. But long before that, he was a super spreader of something else, the stupid. And the stupid has softened us up. It's exposed our weaknesses. It's left us wide open for election day and the day after. That's why now, more than any other time in modern history, our enemies are celebrating. Putin, Kim Jong-un, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they're all celebrating. Just sitting back and watching Donald Trump destroy our country, weaken our national security, piece by piece. It's mayhem that our president creates and our enemies celebrate. And now, they're not just celebrating in private, they're doing it in public. This week, Trump got the endorsement that should make everyone angry. This week, our president, our commander-in-chief, was endorsed by the Taliban. After 19 years of war in Afghanistan, we finally got something to show for it. The endorsement of our president by our enemy. For 19 years, it's been forever war in Afghanistan and around the world. And on the day after, and for many years to come, it could be forever war here at home. It might be big. It might be small. But make no mistake, it'll be war. Even in the face of pending war, there's hope. Even when the missiles are inbound, there are defensive measures that can be taken. Even when war is imminent, there will be helpers. When the day after comes, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and the months turn into the longest winter we've ever seen, even then, look for the helpers. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Look for the helpers. They'll be there. Helpers like Malcolm Nance. 36 years of intelligence experience. An expert on terrorist strategy, tactics, ideology, torture, cyber attacks, and a four-time New York Times bestselling author. And a man who I talked to on Zoom, not from a beach house, or from a TV studio, but from his own secure, fortified skiff. 
If you don't know what a skiff is, you're about to find out. And you're about to find out what Malcolm's preparing for, what America should be preparing for, and what you should be preparing for. In the 1980s, our National Missile Defense Program was called Star Wars. Launched in 1983 by then-President Reagan, the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, or Star Wars program, was supposed to protect the United States from attack by ballistic strategic nuclear weapons. Star Wars was designed to protect America. It was a way of getting the force on our side. Forty years later, we need a different kind of Star Wars. And we need the force now more than ever. And we've got a Navy senior chief and a national security Jedi master on our side. We need all the Jedis we can get for the great battle to come and for the day after and the many days after that. This is a fall of mayhem and Angry Americans is going to continue to guide you through it with powerful guests and a unique, independent, hard-hitting perspective unlike anywhere else in the media. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention, especially after the last few months. And if you're not feeling a little fear, then you're not paying attention. But fear, like anger, must be controlled. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. So be not afraid. We can face what's to come. We can face it with a lightsaber glowing strong of the four eyes. Integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. The bombs are getting ready to drop. I am not uncertain, and neither is Malcolm. And by the end of this pod, you won't be either. So hunker down and prepare for the day after. These are not easy things to talk about, but these are not easy times. And the times ahead could be even tougher. But we can face them. We can navigate them. We can pass them. If we prepare ourselves and each other, if we face our fear, and maybe more importantly, the fear of others, fear that President Mayhem is stoking by the minute, fear that he's stoking right now. And no matter what happens on Election Day, we will be ready for the day after. Welcome to a conversation about what happens after the election. Welcome to a conversation about the day after. Welcome to Angry Americans. Episode 81. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, we have a very special guest who is a returning champion. One of our most popular guests in the first year and a half of this podcast, one of the most uh, influential voices on national security, defense, and politics in America, and a guy with probably the most interesting Zoom layer that we've had on this show so far, our friend, the great and powerful Malcolm Nance is back on Angry Americans. How are you, sir? 
Oh, it's good to be back. Man, I love angry Americans, especially those darn t-shirts. Aren't those great? They're so comfy. It's not comfy, man. People stop me and they go, yeah, angry American. <laughs> there's a lot of people who are wearing the, ang- there's one that just says angry and folks can get them at angryamericans.us. A lot of folks are wearing them to vote this year. Ooh, sweet. Yeah. And we have them in, in many colors. We also uh, have to come up with a, with a Navy, something Navy special because you're also joining us on, on, the, uh, on the week of the Navy birthday. So happy birthday to you and all of our other Navy friends. Yeah, 245 years of, of military excellence. <laughs> so before we go into a lot of national security, politics, so many things I want to mm-hmm. chop up with you, uh, can you tell us, some fo- most folks are listening, some folks are watching, can you tell us about the really cool room you're in back there? I see some camouflage, I see a flag. It- it's a pretty cool setup you got going on back there, man. Yeah, well, you know, this is the result of being stuck on ships, submarines, and, you know, in the back of Humvees and, and other places where I was doing my, uh, my collection for 25 going on 30 years. You know, you get a lot of time with, with high-quality magazines like Vanity Fair and Architectural Digest. And, you know, all those... You know, the beautiful thing about those magazines is they have like the little scented insert yeah. in there, you know? So you're reading Vanity Fair and long form and reading those articles and seeing all this high-end stuff. And you think, I should have a room when I retire, you know? Not just a small I love me wall. I should have an I love me room. And so I, when, I, when I found it, and to, to my, my wife actually approved of this, right? The first thing she said was, well, you know, I thought you were a chief. I thought you guys had your own space. And I was like, we do. It's called a goat locker. And I said, but this is going to be like my man cave. And I said, but I have all this stuff from all my missions. So I'm going to make it my man skiff, which is sensitive compartmented information facility. So I don't have a man cave. I have a man skiff and goat locker. And it literally says that on the door. So if you're not a Navy chief, you have to knock, uncover, enter, and state your business. Is there a password required? (laughs) Yeah, it's good afternoon, senior chief. (laughs) Uncover and state your business. So uh, no, really, this is is where um, I do a lot of a lot of my stuff that I've kept from, you know, operations, uh, this flag I had in Afghanistan that's in the back, my armor and, you know, things like that. It's, it's very cool. It looks like a Baghdad street sign behind you, too. Is that what I see or some kind of? Uh, yeah, system? somebody gave that to me as a gift when I came back from Iraq. It's a kilometer sign to Baghdad, you know, and uh, I thought that I was like, oh, that's the last time I'll see that place. And then I went back like over 10 years, like a couple of times a year. I even brought my wife over to do, uh, to uh, assist us in operations. Uh, for a landscape architect, that was pretty impressive because she saw our anti-suicide bomb berms. And she was like, this is all wrong. The angle will propel those trucks in the air into the middle of your compound. Who did this? You need a landscape architect. And because she's French Canadian. Oh, you froze up on me there. I'm like, you're a landscape architect. (laughs) You you froze Uh, up on me there for a second, Malcolm. I think we got you. Um, But uh, the the skiff is so secure 
that uh, it, it probably doesn't give you uh, an, an unencumbered connection. I, I, maybe you have to make sure that the Russians and Trump and others are not listening <laughs> to your conversations. When I and when anybody thinks of Skiff, I always think about uh, most recently Congressman Matt Gates, who went into the Skiff in on Capitol Hill for that political stunt. I don't know if you remember that. It's yeah, supposed to be a place you don't bring your cell phones. It's supposed to be a secure environment where you talk about top secret and, and secret information. And a bunch of clowns decided to storm it for a photo op. But I don't think anybody's storming your skiff, right? Negative storm. Uh, this will not happen here. This is a pretty secure area of upstate New York. Let me just put it that way. I trained all the SWAT cops in the state police, uh, the, part, the Homeland Security Division up here. And they all know who I am. I'm the terrorism guy. So uh, my neighbors do too. So it's pretty good. Up here. So, so your neighborhood is safe. You're a good neighbor to have. Yeah. Uh, I've been asking everybody, last time you joined us was episode 13. It was June of last year. We were in the car club. We had an awesome conversation. People loved it. We were uh, on the brink of war with Iran. Now oh, yeah. things have changed in many ways. Uh, but the question I've been asking everybody since the pandemic hit, as I usually ask them where you are, and you told us that, but how are you, man? How you been doing? How you been dealing with the pandemic? Give us a sense of, of what this has been like over the last six, seven months since coronavirus hit for you, where you are. Well, I'm, I'm fine. I haven't had coronavirus, so, you know, knock on wood, everything's been great. Uh, you know, we're up here in the upper Hudson Valley, so, uh, you know, my house is rural. I mean, you go past the Walmart. Boom, one block, it's farms and, you know, and small hamlets. And I'm in a tiny, tiny little hamlet. And, um, you know, your listeners might not know that since that time when I was on your, your show, my wife passed away from ovarian cancer. And that's what I've been mainly spending this last year dealing with. It was last September 2019. And I have a new perspective on the world. Mm. Uh, you know, things are, are fleeting and, you know, they say that when you become, we, we call it the W word, right? <laughs> a widower, mm. which we took, you know, we all hate, um, you, you, you get projects. And in fact, you know, Joe Biden is right when he said that, you know, you've got to lean into the world. You have to want to, to help and improve the world, uh, to, 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 um, to, to be something, have, be part of something much bigger than yourself and give your loved one the legacy they deserve. And I think that that's very important. And it's certainly been important for me. Mm. Well, I, uh, um, my heart's been with you. I know, you know, so many of your fans and folks who follow your work have, have been thinking about you. Um, you know, as with everything in your life, you've approached it with tremendous courage and candor. And I know a lot of other folks have, have drawn strength from your journey, man. Uh, you know, your wife was an exceptional woman. Uh, yeah. So talented. Two of you were, were like a power couple, the likes of which I've never seen. Your story oh, leading into this gives us a really sense of the- <laughs> we, were, we were. We were a power couple and it was, you know, you know when you know. And I spent 20 plus years in the military. My first thought was, I don't want to marry someone that likes my job. She hated my job. <laughs> you know, and then I came back and, you know, we start dating. And then I go to Iraq for a year, you know, and then I go, hey, why don't we move to the Middle East? You can get much better jobs. And she did. She had like awesome job, a $4 billion budget in the Middle East. And she was learning all these things that I had learned over the decades and then watching them apply to like how she went to the grocery store 
how my daughter and son were doing at uh, you know the university, Paris Sorbonne over in Abu Dhabi, and then bringing her to Iraq, and she just jumped right into the spy game. I mean, she was just like, "All right, this is fun." You know, everybody thinks you're armed Americans. I look like a Turkish lady because she would wear a hijab. <laughs> and I was like, man, it's true. She just glides through the streets in places where I got to be up gun. So it, it was great. And you know what? That's it's it, she's she's way she's actually way more talented than I ever was. And so now this last year, um, certainly since the start of coronavirus, it's it's been very clear that my job is to fulfill her legacy. We have this giant house we've been renovating for 13 years. And it's not my house. This is Marie's Bellevue Nance's house. And there will be a historic marker about her life and her legacy living in this house. You know, I'm a nobody <laughs> in comparison. Well, you're carrying her legacy forward well. You're keeping up the fight. You seem more focused than ever. I want to rip through... The stuff that maybe we don't get to talk about enough when we're on television, right? And we always get like a one-minute point at the end to say, by the way, let's talk about nukes. Or by the way, let's talk about Russia. Or let's talk about, uh, you know, how our national security is in danger. I want to kind of pull that apart with you in a way that only you can with me. Um, for folks that, that maybe aren't thinking enough about national security, you know, we, the country's at war with itself right now. In my view, it's a lot like, you know, the Civil War. We're going to have this fight for the internal soul of the country, and then we're going to have potentially decades of rebuilding afterward. But there's still a really dynamic national security environment unfolding around us. And I want to rip through a couple of those and let you rip through them in a way that, that really only you can. And let me start by asking you, you know, Malcolm, set the stage for us. I asked you to do this last time when we, when we were facing down Iran, right? You and I were on TV on a regular basis. Coronavirus hadn't hit. We didn't know if, if, if Trump was going to start a nuke war with Iran. Uh, a lot of things have changed. Some things have stayed the same. But can you lay out for us the overall national security landscape right now that the American people face? Yeah. Okay. Well, first, let me, let me do it State of the Union style. Yeah. Uh, the national security environment that the United States finds itself in globally right now is poor. I would say grave, but I would only say grave. Of course, the next step is war, right? Mm -hmm. But I would only say grave if you were to say factor in your domestic politics. Mm -hmm. uh, the rest of the world is poor because we are not a player in the rest of the world the way we had been since, I don't know, we landed on Normandy in 1944. Right. I mean, it's been pretty good since then. Um, but the, the, the world is now, how can I put it? It's sort of, it's becoming bipolar uh, in the sense that we, as the United States, since the age of Trump, has been a policy of withdraw the United States from the markets uh, in the world unless it benefits Donald Trump, Molly Coddle and support dictators and strongmen who we have just spent, you know, since 1944 knocking down, uh, literally removed the word democracy and democracy building from the State Department mission. They did that in 2017. So where technically the United States became a play to a pay to play country. And that had never been done before. We, we talked about that last time in the last podcast. You know, the sheikhs of Saudi Arabia would never have thought that they could buy an American president just by showing them their palaces and 
how many Bentleys they have and putting unlimited money and potential money on the table for them and their children. No one would have thought that that and weapons sales to that country would have allowed them to murder an American you know, resident journalist, just grind him literally into dust and spread his bones in a forest, and that the president of the United States would actually be on your side and act and cover for you, deliberately cover for you, and then braggy covered for you. So that is our allies. I mean, we, we have removed ourselves from the NATO alliance, technically. Donald Trump said and I, um, uh, in 2018, he had a meeting with the king of Sweden. I'm sorry, the prime minister of Sweden. And the prime minister of Sweden said, you know, we're not actually a NATO country. We just, you know, coordinate with NATO. And Trump said to him, that's how I want the United States. Mm. I mean, that's like, it's like you forming angry Americans and saying, okay, well, you know, I don't want to actually have a podcast. I just want to coordinate with these people, you know, and other people, and maybe it'll get broadcast someday. No, you either have it or you don't. We created NATO. We created NATO as a global defense, uh, you know, a, a defense alliance which spanned the North Atlantic uh, region, brought in Europe, post-war Europe and the United States into a defense pact. Donald Trump when he met Jens Stoltenberg, the uh, prime, uh, the uh, president of NATO, uh, Secretary General of NATO, and he had told him the United States, um, or he thought NATO was an economic forum. And, and Hans, Hans Stoltenberg had to explain to him NATO was a defense alliance right right i mean it was incredible the first meeting he's having to explain the nato's mission nato's role why all these weapons were under nato control why we were coordinating through the department of defense and not the treasury i mean it was crazy donald trump was so utterly ignorant he did not know that nato was a defense alliance and all he was concerned about with was getting dues out of NATO, which NATO has no dues. It is not, you know, a country club with golf fees and carts to rent. Okay, the, you know, the German, you know, the Franco-German, you know, mechanized infantry brigade is not leasable to the Secret Service, right? You just can't rent that. So our alliances have been undermined. Um, and then, of course, there's his insane love of foreign dictators, Egypt, Turkey, you throw the Saudi there, North Korea, uh, and his absolute fascinating love relationship with Vladimir Putin, the second father that he didn't have. So, uh, and, and you notice as we discuss this, if, with the exception of Venezuela, um, it's almost like in Venezuela and Mexico building the wall, Latin America doesn't exist in Trump land. Right. I mean, just whoosh doesn't exist in his world. So our what this has done is this has allowed all of our strategic competitors, China, Russia, you know, Belarus, everybody and their dog who wants a piece of the American market that used to exist out there, Brazil, they are now taking our market share away because we have removed diplomacy. We have removed 
American values. We have removed our whole sense of being from the rest of the world. All right. And to a certain extent, Donald Trump has sort of adopted this pimp's attitude of, you know, hey, yo, where's my money at? But, you know, when he's not out, you know, pimp slapping our allies, he's bragging to the other, you know, alpha pimps around the world. It's amazing that this analogy pops into my head. It's, well, it's really true. Yeah. He's, he thinks he's sitting around with, you know, bejeweled goblets and wearing giant hats and a cane around with the other OG, you know, dictators. Trump wants to be in that game. And to do that, you have to destroy everything that you love, right? It reminds me of that, that joking line from the movie Idiocracy of the army officer who was hanging out with the pimps. And he says in his slide presentation, a pimp's love is a special kind of love. You know? Well, that's Donald Trump, right. right? Where's my money at? It's almost his operating philosophy. And it's insane that I actually have to quote idiocracy, talk about, you know, management of prostitutes and our NATO and our global alliances around the world in the same second sec, uh, sentence. But that's what it's come down to. Uh, the United States on a global scale is it, it's, it's bifurcated. We have money in the global market that is flowing. At, but what's really happening is Donald Trump has sold our lunch to the fat kid next to us at the table. And all the time while the tray is being emptied, he's bragging to the other kids at the table that his tray is full. Uh, he has fooled his 30, 40%, 30 to 40% of the American population. But everyone else sees a strategic opportunity to take away America's power. Mm. So a lot to unpack there. Uh, sure. the, pimp, the pimp thing is going to make some great clips. Like I have this, was little John on the apprentice? I don't know, but I feel like <laughs> he's got to get like a little John goblet. Um, but, but it's a don't good worry. way to break nope. it down because everything is so transactional, but to include his relationship with his generals right now, as we have this conversation, he is at odds with the chairman of the joint chiefs. Right. Uh, after, politicizing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, when he dragged him out into the streets during the protests in Washington, D.C., alongside Secretary of Defense Esper. Now, he tweets out that he's going to pull all the troops out of Afghanistan by Christmas. Milley says, wait a minute, we don't necessarily want that, nor do we think we can do that. And he says it out loud. Right. So it seems like, you know, Milley is our next great hope to be on the inside to save us all from Trump, right? After Kelly and McMasters and Mattis and so many others. But can you talk about um, the reality of what we face in this moment right now, where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, also who just came out of quarantine, right, or just came out, like he and, and all the, the Joint Chiefs had to quarantine for two weeks or so because they may have been exposed to the coronavirus by the White House, right, at the White House. Can you talk about what this means practically, right? If I'm not a national security expert, I'm watching cable news and I see, yeah, okay, it seems like, like Trump's kind of always fighting with these guys. He fights with everybody. Why is it different when he's fighting with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs? This is a very different thing. And I don't want to use the phrase unprecedented because that word has just been made mundane now by its overusage. What's happening here is a historic moment. General Milley, unlike 
other senior flag officers who have gotten into it with the president. I mean, this is not anywhere near MacArthur versus Truman, right? Uh, MacArthur essentially planning behind the president's back to nuke China in order to stop a land war on the Korean Peninsula, right? And then telling everybody essentially, Commander in Chief, what's he, right? Um, this is not uh, a circumstance of of um, where um, you have a, a, a an officer disobeying an unlawful order. General Milley's statement to the armed forces two days after the Lafayette Square incident was seminal in the sense that it was really the first time that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff laid down a marker to the people of the United States that essentially, if there was an unlawful order given by the command, the commander in chief, that the armed forces of the United States wouldn't obey it. And that's what he, when he gave his speech that went force wide, right? It was spread out force wide that the armed forces of the United States keep the faith with the constitution of the United States and not any one individual. And as you know, after the May Lai massacre in Vietnam uh, with, uh, you know, with, with Lieutenant Callie, where they mass murdered several hundred civilians, the rule that was hard and fast rule that was entered into the UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, is we have an obligation a sacred obligation now that now is generations old that we will not obey an unlawful order and the lawful the, the what determines its lawfulness is the moral clarity that you have to weigh uh, and find in that order unlawful order example go mass murder those civilians clear right clear violates the laws of war unlawful order, um, an unlawful order in the age of Trump, uh, issuing, taking out the biscuit, which is the new nuclear command codes, getting the, you know, the football, which is the command communications system that the president has and saying, I want to nuke Paris because they don't like me. Unlawful order. No, the, the guy with the football, all right, is obligated to say, it is obligated to say, sir, I cannot do that. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is obligated to say, sir, I cannot do that, right? You know how Trump loves those sir stories, right? Where people come up and say, sir. Well, imagine every member of the chain of command right down to the, you know, to the nuclear launch officers who will look at each other and go, Paris, I'm not turning that key, right? And of course, to get to that point, you would have to fire every person down to the nuclear launch officer and find a psychophant willing to carry out an unlawful order. General Milley was making it clear to the president, whether he got it or not, but he certainly made it clear to everyone else. We are beholden to the constitution and the constitution is more than just a set of rules. It's also a set of values. And those values which the armed forces is comprised of, and I write about this in my last book, The Plot to Betray America, where I do a study of character and what we in the armed forces believe is our, our core principles in the Navy, 
uh, honor, courage, commitment. You know, in the Air Force, excellence in all we do. In the Army, duty, honor, country. Marine Corps, always faithful. Coast Guard's always ready. You know, <laughs> Space Force, beat me up. <laughs> but, okay, all joking aside, yeah. it was Colonel, uh, Colonel Chamberlain uh, of the 20th Maine who saved the Battle of Gettysburg at Little Round Top, who in his speech years later talked about the, the moral fiber that creates and weaves the character that, that is bound in the soul of a man, the character. And Donald Trump meets none of the minor, even the slimmest qualifications in terms of character. He relies on the dictator's rule of, obey, of obedience to orders. And that's why Donald Trump has now come smack into the core values of the armed forces. Milley wasn't just saying, hey, you know, the National Guard is, falls under our control. Uh, he ordered back every force that was under his control. The 82nd Airborne's ready force that they bought to Washington, D.C., the Ready Brigade, they ordered them back. The 10th Mountain Division Military Police ordered them back, ordered all the ammunition that the National Guard units had brought with them, ordered them returned, and then essentially, you know, didn't obey. Uh, any further orders on troop deployments. Three times the chair, the, the Joint Chiefs were asked to bring more troops. And three times, you know, they had to go out to the PX and get a haircut. Right, right. <laughs> so thank you for the history lesson. That's part of why I think it's important to bring you on this show to go all the way back to the Civil War and beyond and put it in current context. I've been outspoken about Milley. I think he should have resigned. At the point in that in that declaration to the force, he also apologized for allowing himself to be politicized in this typically right. noble way where he apologized for allowing himself to be politicized without focusing the fact uh, focusing attention on the fact that Trump politicized him. Right. So there's always kind of a pulling of the punches. that has been happening. But maybe there's a calculation now, Malcolm, with General Milley. And now it seems more and more like like with with Secretary Esper, too who said today he has no plans to deploy uh, military forces to polling sites. It seems like maybe they've done a calculation and said, you know, Trump can't fire me in the last 30 days. Right. I'm going to be here until the election. I'm going to hold as many of the lines and, and, and bolster as much of our integrity and protect the force as much as I can. I mean, that seems like a calculation. But let's take this a step further, because part of what I want to do in this conversation, Malcolm, is not just analyze the, the news item that happened today, where, for example, Trump tweeted a conspiracy theory saying that Obama and Biden uh, killed SEAL Team 6, right? That, that's, the, that's the flashpoint of the day. I don't want to get distracted by that. I actually want to ask you and have a conversation with you about projecting to the future. Because right. those of us who are military strategists, those of us who are political strategists, are thinking about the future, not mm -hmm. just for uh, our businesses or for our country, but for our families. And, and many of us, I think, see what could be a very potentially flammable, violent time around the election and in the weeks afterward, maybe all the way through to January, various levels. It could just be, you know, riots or it could be the Proud Boys versus the Wisconsin National Guard. Right. right. This could escalate to a level we've never seen since the Civil War. And a lot of folks are looking to the military to be our savior. A lot of folks are scared to death of the military. 
because they don't know if it's our military or Trump's military. And that's maybe the most damaging part of what he's done. But can I ask you to project, last time you were on the show, I asked you, what would war with Iran look like? And you laid it out with, with a great degree of specificity. I'm going to ask you now, what do you think the election month will look like and the, the months that follow based off the best knowledge we have right now? How do you see this militarily unfolding uh, domestically, obviously, and potentially internationally as well? You know, I, l- let, me, let me reach back to something. I, I, I like to choose popular fiction from time to time to give some illustrations. If any of you hadn't seen it, there, there are two TV shows, and I might have mentioned it in the last show, that I think are sort of can give us indications of what could happen. There, there was a show, an apocryphal show, I really liked it, uh, was um, uh, called La- Lost, no, Lost Resort, Last Resort, Last Resort. And it was about a U.S. ballistic missile submarine uh, with a black uh, commander, in, uh, black submarine commander. Um, and uh, they were given orders using the wrong communications network to nuke Karachi, Pakistan. And they were like, what? Wait, what? And the orders were coming from a secondary communications network that means that Washington, D.C. and all other command structures have been destroyed through atomic bombs. So instead of executing that order, they go to serve, they, they go up a little high and they start watching satellite TV and they start watching, you know, Hannah Montana out of the Washington, D.C. area, which means they're now going to question those orders. Because when you give orders to become a genocidaire, you might want to make sure, you know, before you nuke five million people, you might want to make sure that, you know, Washington, D.C. doesn't exist. So interesting component of this story is that the officer in charge of this submarine um, is, is, is trying to make this moral decision. And at one point, they shift back to Washington, D.C., to the office of a defense lobbyist. And on the television screen, this is the part that's most interesting. You see the, the it, almost in the background, you hear the, the announcer on CNN or MSNBC going, the Joint Chiefs voted a, that they have no confidence in the President of the United States, and Congress is preparing for his imminent removal. And then you suddenly understand the context of a warning order to nuke Karachi, Pakistan. The President in this show is, has lost confidence of the armed forces. And then they receive a call, this submarine, not from the Secretary of Defense, not from the National Security Advisor, but an assistant deputy secretary of defense who says, I'm relieving you of your command. Go nuke Karachi, Pakistan. Right, right, right. That's the kind of crisis that could happen where Donald Trump decides to do something broad stroke. Look, we, the last time we talked about war with Iran, it turns out Donald Trump was quite the coward. He really didn't want war with Iran. He wanted to appear that he could have war with Iran. Mm-hmm. And so he backed away from it because he's afraid of things that are out of his, you know, made for TV control. But this, where Donald Trump is backed with his, with his back to the wall, losing the confidence of the country. Uh, it was his biographer the other day who said, this is where he will lash out 
because his philosophy is if I go down, everyone goes down with right. me. Right. I don't believe that will happen, but I do believe we could be in a circumstance where next week we wake up and suddenly all of the chairs of the Joint Chiefs of Staff are resigning along with General Milley. And you know what will happen. I mean, the first thing you have to do is you have to extrapolate. What happened? Well, the only thing that could have happened was that Donald Trump gave a crazy order while we were sleeping. And they were like, hell no, I'm not doing it. My deputies aren't doing it. The force chiefs aren't doing it. And you can work your way down to the guy who's at the latrine at Fort Bragg, right? Uh, He's not going to do it either. And that's a possibility because there are crazy things going on right now. Bill Barr started dropping hints last week that that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden were on his radar. And then Trump started dropping hints that he wanted Barack Obama, you know, essentially arrested and indicted. Rudy Giuliani today said put out a whole bunch of emails taken from the Ukraine saying Hunter Biden should be arrested to a certain extent. He needs an October surprise, you know, in October. Well, we only got two weeks left in October. So imagine him saying, I'm going to order the arrest of Barack Obama or Joe Biden. Now, they have Secret Service protection. Those officers are sworn for life. Whose orders do they follow? Do they follow the protectee code or the director of the Secret Service? Are you going to have a gun battle between his security forces, personal protective officer, or some local cops that throw a perimeter around Friendship Heights between Capitol Hill police and Washington, D.C. SWAT? This is so crazy that we're talking about it. That means it's now within the realm of possibility. Right. I I don't hold any truck for crazy. The other scenario is that. So that's that's so television show number one is the last resort. You mentioned Hannah Montana, but that's not the second show you want to talk about. No, there's another one because I think it's important. You know, um, when I was in Iraq, someone once said just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not trying to kill you. That's correct. Just because we cover these scenarios, you know, doesn't or they're crazy doesn't mean they're possible. This is a man who stood before the U.N. and threatened to wipe out North Korea. Right. He has made these statements before. He, he, he it's, it's not unreasonable that he could make a proclamation. But he also and maybe this is where you're going to I'm going to ask you what the second show is. He could also just say, you know, I'm on my way out. I'm going to go. All my f- supporters go down fighting. Right. And, and maybe a small number of them will do that. But there are a small number that will do that. So we could see skirmishes. Right. You could see mili- these quote unquote militias that I think are terrorist groups. I'm sure you have thoughts on that. Right. Mm-hmm. Little terrorist groups, domestic terrorist groups, the Proud Boys, others, uh, you know, trying to create essentially terrorist activities that have to be put down by the FBI, like, for example, kidnapping the governor of Michigan, right? These are real world scenarios that are unfolding. So I I just want to underscore that this is real. It is possible. And that our national defense apparatus is not only planning for it, they're addressing it. We don't even know what they're facing right now. But in real time, the CIA, the FBI, all of our national security apparatus is monitoring and putting down these types of things while we record this conversation. Right. I will say this, and I say this as an intelligence professional, and I would never, prior to 2016, ever have thought any of the things I said out of my mouth over the last four years, every bit of which has turned out to be true, 
which I predicted in some circumstances years in advance and wrote three books about, I would never have imagined any of them being true because for them to be true, you would have to be in this crazy Tom Clancy world where the fabric of the United States was not just, you know, not rendered, but literally taken with scissors and cut into pieces. And as I like to say, where like Trump has removed the star, you know, the, the blue field and the, the red stripes and has just made an all white flag because that's his version of tribalism, which, by the way, is the flag of surrender. But to just to even talk about these things was crazy. Now, I don't have to discuss them. I don't have to prognosticate them. I'm now, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking what has actually happened. And so when, when we do an intelligence analysis or a projection, that's one thing. But everything that I've said what, in this last few minutes of what could happen over the next two weeks, I have high confidence. High confidence is 90% up that these things could occur and that they could literally rip this country apart in the next 14 days. We have seen the things that have really hit us come out of nowhere. Virtually no, you know, no uh, uh, transmitting the punch. And Trump, I think, because he's, there is no process in his head. It's all gut spur of the moment. What can I do to, to amplify things and terrify people and upgun my supporters? The next scenario that you asked about. Is yeah, this, is, this is the second television show, right? Yeah, the show it wasn't Hannah, not Hannah Montana. No, which I had no idea you were a big fan of, but, but, well, yeah. you know, that's how you checked whether you were nuked or not. Right. Yeah. Uh, you can see Hannah Montana. Cause Hannah, Hannah Montana, like roaches will survive everything. Everything. Right? Okay. So the other show was a TV show from the mid two thousands called Jericho. Mm. Jericho is terrifying. Even now, when I think about the TV show Jericho, I get a little nervousy and goosebumpy. I said that Jericho is not a TV show. Jericho is a template for someone to destroy the United States. And it's, a, it's an unlikely scenario, you might think, where these ultra-extremist, disparate right-wing groups get together with a director of Homeland Security and using a government contractor that's like Halliburton, take 23 atomic bombs that were supposed to be dismantled from the Belarusian arsenal and detonate them east of the Mississippi to eliminate liberal America. And that's not the real scary part of the show. The scary part of the show is the entirety of two seasons of television comes down to how a tiny little village survives without any governmental infrastructure support until the 10th Mountain Division arrives you know, to stop range wars between one village and the next. And the most dangerous thing you could do in the TV show Jericho is leave the perimeter of your village on a road. And I just thought when I was watching it, I, I realized that does not require a nuclear bomb right. to go off to do. Right. That requires civil unrest at a level where people turn their little towns into armed fiefdoms and that the state, county, and national forces can't handle an uprising. So the place that I live in in upstate New York is about 20 miles west of South Egremont. 
uh, Massachusetts. And that is where the final battle of the Shays Rebellion was fought. And if you recall the Shays Rebellion, it was a tax rebellion, Massachusetts, late 18, uh, late 1790s. And they just decided they were going to have another American Revolution. George Washington ordered the governor of Massachusetts to bring out the state militia, and he had a special code, uh, a special addendum to his uh, frag order, to his to his force order. Bring cannons, <laughs> okay? So in South Egremont, these yahoos with rifles went at it with the state militia, and it quickly ended when they started shooting cannonballs through them. Yep. Killing, of course, the guy who started the rebellion. This is how it might have to end up for some people who think they have enough AR-15s and ammunition and they and their big fat, you know, uh, meal team six, you know, uh, fat boys are going to go out and seize control of the government for Donald Trump. That could also manifest itself overnight. Yeah, this is this is the conversation I want to have because it's the one that you're not seeing on cable news. No. It's the one that people that we're having with our fellow national security, military veterans, friends online, on the phone. We're talking about different scenarios and we're scenario planning like we're like we've been trained to do. Right. Right. And and now we're, we're looking at the, the, the landscape where we see these, you know, terrorist groups, militias, whatever we want to call them doing checkpoints. Right. Like actually right. executing checkpoints. They are unmarked. They have weapons. It's it exactly what we saw. It's exactly what we saw in Fallujah. Exactly what we saw in Baghdad. They're, they're asking for your papers. Who are you? Where you're going? They have no authority. Right. It's not. I've explained to people before that what was in large part a civil war in Iraq was not the blue and the gray. It was a shark tank. So we right. have this potential shark tank unfolding. That could be, let's call it best case scenario, there are some minor yahoos. I think uh, our friend Naveed was on MSNBC and, and called them. They said, he said they're not uh, Al-Qaeda, the Yal-Qaeda, right? Yeah. There may I, be call these, them, I call them vanilla ISIS. There you go, vanilla, vanilla ISIS, right? So some of these groups come out and, and cause some degree of destruction, chaos, violence, terrorist attacks. Our national security apparatus has to respond. We could have a prolonged extended period of months. And... I, you know, let's assume Joe Biden wins and Trump refuses th to accept the results. And we have, ironically, a similar situation where Biden now has to be walled in the White House to protect him. And we, we have the forces kind of flipping the other way and a prolonged period of, of instability. So all that happens potentially, right, while our enemies are licking their chops. So I said it before, our enemies are celebrating. Putin loves this. Kim Jong-un loves this. Al-Qaeda couldn't have dreamed up a better scenario than the coronavirus taking out hundreds of thousands of people and crippling our economy and tying up our military. Um, but go, go back to what, uh, what happens then, right? So, so let's assume Trump is out, he's taken out, Biden comes in. I mean, are we looking at a new normal where America feels like Israel for years, where there's a constant threat of some kind of violence? Or does it feel like the Middle East? Or do you feel like this runs its course? And if so, how long does that take? You know, I've, I've trained a lot of people in Homeland Security uh, divisions or state Homeland Security departments over the last 20 years. I started with Georgia Department of Homeland Security in 2002, uh, where, you know, I had to bring counterterrorism and intelligence principles down to the street level SWAT cop. 
right? But there's some things that they taught me too. I mean, I went through SWAT officer school uh, when I, while I was in the military with Capitol Hill police, and that was all Los Angeles police SWAT guys. There's one thing that I learned about them. They like a fight. <laughs> okay. So I know, I mean, I mean it. Police forces are jealous organizations. Set aside the few, few bad apples that have caused these horrific uh, murders of African American men. The average policeman wants to go home and they do want law and order. But when you give them an extraordinary threat, they relish that fight. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I trained New York State Department of Homeland Security and I was going over with them uh, how, how the ISIS members inside of Paris during the Bataclan massacre had established secondary and tertiary safe houses. And in one scenario, the safe house in Saint-Denis, which I later went to, um, that it was the snipers that initiated the gun battle. And I said, I said, I want you to listen to this cut of audio. And I played them this shooting and it's like full automatic. I go, that's the snipers. The scenario got so bad. They saw the SWAT team had a hand grenade thrown into the hallway, which killed their dog and incapacitated the assault team. The snipers were shooting full automatic on the terrorists. That's a bad scenario. And these cops are all like, it could get that bad. And I'm like, yeah, but the people you might have to deal with have semi-automatic long rifles, right. and there won't be three of them. There'll be, there might be 50 of them. In this scenario, and this is why I mentioned the TV show Jericho, uh, in, in Oregon last month during the wildfires, a rumor had gotten out that Antifa, um, Antifa provocateurs were coming to this tiny little village in Oregon and armed men took it upon themselves to set up those checkpoints you were talking about until the state police intervened, told them, you know, you better disappear. We're going to disarm you. Um, all based on a rumor and two journalists who had come up there, who had out-of-state plates. And these people were being told on their social media, Antifa was setting these fires. And they were ready to kill over that. They were ready to establish their own little fiefdom over that. That's what happened in the TV show Jericho, to the point where you would roll up on a village and they would identify you friend or foe and then kill you based on whatever scenario is happening in their head. And uh, just imagine if that were to happen on the election night and some people refuse to accept the results and they go, well, we're Trump country now or we're by whatever scenario you want to use it as a winner. I don't see that happening with liberals because, you know, we don't go around brandishing our guns in ISIS like convoys with giant flags running around like we just took the city of Mosul. That's vanilla ISIS. They're really good at that. But. Imagine these guys saying, okay, Donald Trump says we won. We won and they're going to steal the election from us. Now it's time for us to start going and taking back state houses. Time for us to go take poli uh, police stations. Time for us to go out and do armed demonstrations on the streets, right? You know, I tell my neighbors this all the time. I'm a competitive shooter. And they go, oh, Malcolm, you know, I, you know, I heard you're a gun guy. I go, yeah. For someone who is out of control in my village who comes onto my property. I'm not with you. I'm not a militia man, right? There's, and these people have these fantasies in their head that they are 
essentially the Wolverines. You know, they're the guys who are fighting the invader forces. They believe the propaganda they're being told. Right, right. And I am definitely afraid on election night, we may get into the second episode of Jericho, where law enforcement gets killed by, you know, somebody with guns. And now all that's left is these guys are establishing roadblocks on the bridge at the front and back of their town and not recognizing the authority of the United States the next day. So we've gone on a hell of a journey uh, from Paris to Hannah, Montana, to the Wolverines reference from Red Dawn, which is, you know, the Oh remake. my God, we're so screwed that we're talking about this. The remake was shit, but my generation of, 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 of uh, soldiers and, and service members in part were raised thinking we were going to be like Jed in Wolverines, right? In, in, in Red Dawn. But now it comes full circle. Some people in this country right now, Malcolm, are in denial. Right. Many people are in denial. They don't want to understand the severity of what's happening or the depth of the national security threats that we face, both domestic and abroad. Um, you're on TV all the time. You're the kind of scare the shit out of people guy on MSNBC. I sometimes play that role, too. But at, at the end of the day, for people who are listening to this conversation and it either validates what they've been concerned about or it's scaring the living shit out of them, uh, what do you want to leave them with? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you realistic? What, what is your message to the person who doesn't care about party, who cares about their country, who's reasonable and wants you know, our, our country to get through this really hard time and come out on the other side better? What's your, what's your message to them right now? Okay. And, you know, I hope they're listening to me because now I want to say something that I think is very important. I was born in Philadelphia at the Naval Hospital in Philadelphia. I was raised in that city. I was steeped in the, the words of the founding fathers. I believed in everything that, that they, they wrote, they debated about, they argued about, the values that they espoused, even though some of them were flaming hypocrites. Thomas Jefferson was sleeping with his late wife's half-sister, who was a slave, right? I mean, <laughs> so... These things, though, mean something to me. What was written, what the values we have held for 245 years means something to all of us. And if you call yourself a patriot, if you call yourself American, the next three weeks is the one time you must pay attention to what's going on in the world around you. We literally could be at the end of the American experiment. Yes, we can have an election, but if, it's, if we find people refuse to go by the results on either side, if armed people decide they're not going to accept the results of the election, or if we elect a, a third, you know, this, this third-rate dictator, and I'm saying that about Donald Trump, I'm saying that as an intelligence professional who has seen third-world dictators, tin pot potentates, left and right. This man is an authoritarian. He believes in what I call constitutional autocracy, the trappings of the Constitution with all the autocracy and dictatorship of Vladimir Putin's Russia. We, are, we have lost our values. Those values we may not get back if this election goes into his hands, either through force 
or because you were too lazy to get up on election day or the 20 days in advance of the election. Many states are voting now. My state votes in 10 days. You know, it's almost two weeks of voting time before the election. This is your chance to be in a historic moment in American history. Because if you're not, you're going to have a historic moment in American history, whether you like it or not. And whether it's American history for the next 20 years or Trumpian history, um, you need to make that choice. If you call yourself a patriot and you say that you find that man's character is your values, especially if you're a veteran, you need to go check your oath because the oath is to the Constitution. It is not to somebody who is now the most documented liar in American history. This man makes, you know, this man makes the characters in, in Huck Finn look like pikers, right? What were the two, what were the two con artists in, in, in uh, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer? Uh, the King and the Duke, right? These two hucksters who went from village to village swearing one was, you know, the former Dauphin of France and the other is the Duke of York and he would build money out of them. That's where they are. The problem is the flag behind you is what's at risk. Will you risk your nation over that? Do you re is your one day where you don't care worth losing everything that's ever been before us? You need to make that decision now. And if you, what do they, what do they say? You better choose, but you better choose wisely. Mm. That 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 is a uh, is is a little segment that people are going to hit rewind on, and I hope it wakes them up. I hope it shakes them to action. We say it all the time: if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, and you must stay vigilant. I think that Malcolm, you just kind of encapsulated everything we've tried to cover in 81 episodes of this show, and and all the other work we've been doing in between. It is it is it is gut check time. But I also hope that this show has prepared people for the fact that election day is not the end of the fourth quarter. It might be the end of the third quarter, and we might have another quarter after that and maybe one, two, three overtimes. So part of what I think we owe this country as, as people who have experience on politics and, and, and national defense and these strategic issues is, is whatever, whatever voice we have reminding people this is going to be a long fight. This is a fight for the soul of the nation, and like any fight, it's going to be long, it's going to be costly, it's going to be hard. Your leaders have to level with you, but there are leaders that will rise to the moment. Malcolm, you are one of those leaders that's rising to the moment. Um, you are a conscience. Uh, you, I think I said you were the most interesting person in America last time I interviewed you. just keep it more interesting. You know, to go from Huck Finn to Red Dawn to Hannah Montana to Chamberlain, you take us on a fascinating journey and you educate us along the way. I do have to give you something. We gave you peeps last time. I gave you the T-shirt that you love that people can get at angryamericans.us. I'm sending you a bottle of Uncle Nearest whiskey. We didn't have that. We didn't have that last time you were on the show, but you're getting Uncle Nearest. Wait, wait, isn't that the the black bourbon? Yes. Yeah, that's the, the, the recipe of the old guy that created Jack Daniels. He was the black distiller. Nearest green. I have been dying to get that stuff. The, the I legend, know the legend grows. The legend grows. Jeffrey Wright on our show introduced it to us. They've been big supporters of this show. I'm going to get you a bottle of that. I'm actually, I'm telling folks, I'm still participating in Sober October. I picked the hardest October on the planet to stay off 
the sauce, but I have done it since the beginning of September. I'm going to stick it out through November, and I think it'll help me stick it out for the next couple of months. But you're getting a bottle of that. Uh, one final question. This is the bonus question for returning guests uh, to end on a moment of levity. Uh, it's a really tough one. There's no third-party option. You must choose. Malcolm Nance, pancakes or waffles? <gasps> My God. Pancakes. And would you like to know why? Of course. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something happy. All right. Two nights ago, you know, they say when you lose a spouse, there's two types of dreams. You have regular dreams, and then you have these dreams called visitation dreams. Mm. I never believed this, this bunkum until I had one. Mm. And two nights ago, I had what's called a visitation dream. And my wife came to me, told me she loved me and gave me a big kiss. And then we had pancakes. <laughs> So I'm in. I'm team pancake from here on out, boy. That is a great answer. And and the spirit is strong within you. Your wife's spirit is strong within you. And, and all that you and your wife and your family and your entire team uh, have been doing over this last couple of years, especially, is so critical. Uh, I think we're all team pancakes right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I am so grateful for your leadership, man. I thank you for coming back on Angry Americans. I hope you'll come back again. Happy Navy birthday to you. Yes. And uh, we're going we're gonna to continue to monitor this situation. But uh, you're a great American, man. I'm honored to have you as a friend. I hope wherever you are in that skiff, you're staying frosty and you're staying vigilant. I am too. I hope you do too. And I love this show. Keep up the t-shirts, man. They're awesome. This show loves you back. Ladies and gentlemen, potentially the future governor of the state of New York, the great and powerful Malcolm Nance, live from his underground bunker, which will only fit a couple of you. So take it in your own hands and let's all fight for our country so that Malcolm Nance can get elected governor of New York. Uh, that's it from here. Thank you, Malcolm. You're welcome. Stay frosty. The day after this podcast, I always have many people to thank, so I want to get it out of the way now. First of all, our tremendous guest, Malcolm Nance. Follow him on Twitter. He's at, at Malcolm Nance. And pick up his books, The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It. It's only 13 bucks online. Or pick up his 2018 book, The Plot to Destroy Democracy, How Putin and His Spies Are Undermining America and Dismantling the West, that one's only 12 bucks. Check out Malcolm's website, thetacticsofterror.org. He also introduced me to Ron Perlman, which I have to thank him again for. I will forever be grateful for that. And stay tuned. Malcolm is part of a special new series coming next month that you're not going to want to miss. I'm a part of producing something that is very different, very important, very righteous, that will be on your TV on election night and the day after. That's all I can tell you for now. But it's going to be cool. And Malcolm and at least one other past Angry Americans guest is going to be a part of it. Also, big thanks to Nicole Navega on Malcolm's team, known on Twitter as La Femme Nikita. She's absolutely awesome. I want to send a big shout out to Nicole. Also, thanks to the Righteous team that on the day after every pod continues to crank. I want to thank Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz. If I had to be in a bunker, there are three people I'd want to be in a bunker with. And if I was in a bunker, I'd also want Uncle Nearest. My thanks to Uncle Nearest. 
Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, inspired by the best whiskey maker the world has ever known. You heard about it from Malcolm. You've heard about it from Jeffrey Wright, the first known African-American master distiller, Nathan Nearest Green. Go to UncleNearest.com. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible whiskey. And Uncle Nearest is now the most awarded new American premium whiskey brand in U.S. history. 75 awards since its debut in 2017. And Cigar and Spirits Magazine also named Uncle Nearest one of the top five whiskeys in the world. I am still exercising Sober October. It's been four weeks. Thanks for all of your support. But when I do break that fast of whiskey, it will be with Uncle Nearest and it will be toasting many of you. You know what else whiskey is great with? Pie. And I want to send a big thank you to my friends at Noble Pies. I got an amazing pie from my friends at Noble Pies. Cherry, one of my favorites. Please check them out at noblepies.com. They're a bakery and farm located in Warwick, New York. Fresh ingredients, local farms, really delicious stuff. The recipes are Texas influenced from the owner's grandmother. And that owner is Leslie Noble. Big shout out and thanks to Leslie for your support and for that awesome pie. Noble Pies, local family owned business with a huge heart and awesome pies. And America needs more pie, especially now. So thank you, Noble Pies. Also, been continuing to do all different kinds of media. I want to thank my friend Jim Wallace. I talked to my dear friend, the Reverend Jim Wallace. Uh, for his podcast, The Soul of a Nation. You can check it out anywhere you find your pods. Uh, It's a Sojourner's pod. And I talked to Jim about the importance of sacrifice in leadership, uh, the fight for the soul of America, and why Trump is simply a bad person. So my thanks to Jim Wallace. Check out his podcast, The Soul of a Nation. I'm in a recent episode there. And for something very different, my thanks to Eric Bowling. Uh, I'm on his show, America This Week, on the Sinclair Network, so check your local listings. Eric Bowling used to be on Fox. He's a very big supporter of Trump, and he has an exclusive one-on-one with Trump this week and an interview with me. So check that out. My thanks to Eric Bowling. Check your local listings on the Sinclair Network. I am taking the righteous message to any media, anywhere, anytime. Also want to thank our vigilant Patreon members, and in particular, Nathan Holdstein, who just became a Patreon member. Thank you guys for continuing to support this podcast. If you haven't supported us yet, go to Patreon, become a member, support this show, support the work, and get exclusive access to behind-the-scenes content and an upcoming cocktail hour with me. Uh, also, thanks to everyone who guessed the guest on social media, including that same Nate Holdstein. He was the only one to correctly guess the guest for our last episode. He guessed McFoley on Instagram. So congratulations to Nate. You got a prize coming your way. And thanks to everybody who checked out the McFoley episode. It's one of our highest rated yet. We continue to have tremendous downloads. Uh, Stephen Colbert, Governor Christie, Todd Whitman, all our recent episodes. We continue to be in the top 100 of podcasts nationally and all around the world. So thank you all for your support. And I always want to hear from you. So tweet, post on our social, even call. We have a hotline, 833-33-ANGRY. And just like we did with Nathan Holstein, you know what'll happen. I'll make you famous. And as always, thanks to my wife, my family, my two amazing boys. Our anniversary was last week, so happy anniversary again to my dear Lori. It was an awesome weekend. Halloween is just a couple of days away. We're excited about that. 
And thanks to my wife and the boys for making that awesome. Football's going well. In school, kindergarten is going pretty well. And even though Trump can't wear a mask, my five-year-old can do it all day long. But my thanks to them for continuing to bring the positive energy and being the most awesome family on the planet. And you are the best listeners on the planet. So please keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. And go to angryamericans.us. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can check out our YouTube page. You can watch the video of this episode with Malcolm Nance and see inside his skiff. See that underground bunker layer that Malcolm Nance calls his home. And you can see all the video from Stephen Colbert in every episode all the way back to number one. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. We'll adapt, improvise, and overcome. Until then, we will keep it moving. So stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. We'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. There's always plenty of reason to be angry. But there's also a way to turn it, a way to channel it, a way to harness it. There's always a way to make an impact. And as we prepare for the day after, more than ever, you can turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. I always offer you a way to convert your righteous anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can be impactful Americans. An action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and makes a difference. And like this show, the actions are always packed with the four eyes. Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. And when the day after comes, you don't want to wake up and wonder why you didn't do more. You don't want to wake up and wonder what the hell happened. I am in so much pain right now. God damn. Look at this place. I know. Phil, they have my credit card downstairs. I am so screwed. How the hell does a tiger get in the bathroom? He almost killed me. Hey, bro, you mind putting on some pants? I find it a little weird. I have to ask twice. Pants at a time like this, I don't have any What the fuck happened last night? Hey, Phil, am I missing a tooth? I can't. Oh. Oh, my God. America, when the day after comes, let's not be the guys from The Hangover. As Malcolm shared, this is it. This is the time to spend any unspent rounds. This is the time to drain the tank. This is the time to leave it all on the field. This is a fight for the soul of our nation, and we should all prepare for overtime and ready ourselves for the day after the election. We should work like there's no tomorrow. Our tomorrow and all our tomorrows will be determined by the next few short weeks. So get out and vote. Vote against Donald Trump. Vote in favor of America's future. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Joe Biden's not perfect, but he's good. If you can vote as soon as you finish this podcast, go do it. If you can't, set a calendar now for when you will on Election Day. Then go get others. Get as many other people as you can to vote today. Then get as many as you can to vote on Election Day. Help them find their polling place. Help them find out how to do a mail-in ballot. Drive them to the polling station. Bring a chair and some water and some uncle nearest for them if they have to wait online for seven hours. If you exhaust all those options, see if you can volunteer to work at your local voting station. Go to vote.org. All the information is there. It's go time. Confidence is high. This is not an exercise. We have a launch today.
One of your simulations, Mr. Kittrick. All right. Flush the bombers, get the subs in launch mode. We are at DEFCON 1. DEFCON 1. We are at DEFCON 1. This is not a war game. This is not a simulation. This is the fight for the future of our country. It's the final Nobody made a greater mistake than he or she who did nothing because they could only do little. So in these final days, do whatever you can and prepare for the days after. This is the final countdown. And it's okay to be angry, especially now. No, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. And we're in this together, just like we will be on the day after. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay frosty and stay vigilant, America. America.